0: Good afternoon, everyone, and, and a warm welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Delbert Rohak, and um, I'm a policy analyst here at the at Cato Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. First of all, I would like to thank my colleagues, Ian Vasquez, Ashley Benson, Maria Anderson, for helping me set up this forum. Um, and I would probably, um, the way I could start this is, is to just inquire whether anyone in the room knows a guy named Duncan J. Watts. If you, if you don't, you should know him. He is, he is an interesting um, young chap. He is an Australian physicist turned sociologist. And he worked as the principal research scientist at Yahoo at some point. And he wrote a neat little book, which is called Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. <laughs> and, and, and in that book, he comes up with this interesting story. He asks why it is Um, that Mona Lisa is the most famous painting in the world. And he says that there are many competing explanations for that. You could ask yourself whether it's because of the mystery surrounding the identity of the the subject, whether it's because of her enigmatic expression, whether it's because of of the peculiar composition of the painting, or whether it's because it was painted by, by Da Vinci. The trouble with these explanations, he says, is that um, we already know that Mona Lisa is a very famous painting, and therefore all of our explanations will be sort of retrospectively fitted to, 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 to account for that and, and so, so they will tend to be circular they will focus on the features that make Mona Lisa Mona Lisa like and, and if we don 't have a good counterfactual uh, it 's very difficult to to, to assess their, their validity and I I would venture to say that when you try to explain the rise of the West, the economic rise of the West, um, uh, you might be tempted to behave a little bit like an art historian who is trying to explain the rise of Mona Lisa to fame. So you know there are all these different accounts for why industrial revolution happened and why it happened in the 18th century England as opposed to to other places at other time periods. People emphasize the particular geography of of particular parts of Europe, um, its endowment of natural resources, Protestant ethic, um, institutions, culture, and so on and so forth. Um, But because we have only one observation for for the Industrial Revolution, it's really difficult to to discriminate between between those different accounts. The good news is that our featured speaker today, Dira Miklosky, claims that she has cracked this problem and that she can show you that the Industrial Revolution occurred in England in the 18th century because of the rhetorical and cultural change that occurred in the same place between the Elizabethan era and, 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 and 1700s. Um, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce era, although she obviously needs no introduction. Um, she's going to get one anyway. Um, she <laughs> teaches economics, history, English, and communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's a, obviously a very well-known economic historian. She wrote um, 16 books, around 400 articles in scholarly journals on topics that range from technical economics, economic history, um, to transgender advocacy, and, and ethics of the bourgeois virtues. Her forthcoming book, which we'll be discussing today, The Treasured Bourgeoisie, How Markets and Innovation Became Ethical and then Suspect, um, is the third in a series of four on the bourgeois era. Um, you might remember that in 2008, she published a book with, with Steve Ziliak on the cult of statistical significance, where she debunks um, um, the, um, the idea behind uh, the so-called tests of statistical significance and and, 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 and shows um, their detrimental effect on, on, on research in social sciences. Didward received her PhD uh, in economics from Harvard, where she studied with under Alexander Gershenkron and wrote a dissertation on, on the productivity of British steel and iron industry in the late 19th century, which became an instant classic. Um, she describes herself as a Literary, quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive, Episcopalian, Midwestern, woman from Boston who was once a man. Lyra, <laughs> the, uh, the floor is yours. We are thrilled to have you here.
1: Thank you very much. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. As I was um, <laughs> saying uh, earlier. Every time I come to Cato, what impresses me most, or instantly, is how many young people are here. I mean, I don't—I—I I, I think old people are nice, but I—I um, I think it's a great um, uh, hope for liberty that there are so many. Young people prepared to devote the early part of their career to systematically advancing it. So, I I salute you. I, I have a speech d- defect, as you'll as you'll notice, uh, but that hasn't stopped me from earning my living by by chattering. So, um, somehow I may make it through. I, I'm. I'm not surprised that you're, you're um, uncertain, you know, Delabor, about the number of books I'm uh, writing on this subject. Because when I started, I was going to write one book. And it became four. And then it became six. And by the way, when it was six, I was going to call it, in a vulgar combination of Latin and Greek, a sexology and sell a lot of copies. <laughs> But since we at Cato don't believe that fraud is a is a good way of doing business, I decided not to not to call it that, and I decided in the end to just do three volumes. One is called first one was published in um, 2006, called the Bourgeois Virtues: Ethics for an Age of Commerce, which argues that it's ethical to be in commerce. Now, I I don't need to argue this case very vigorously at Cato, um, but I, I think the, the rest of the world needs to know that you can be a Christian or a Muslim and, and still be an ethical person in business and that the... Or the, the, um, the principal virtues that you find in the East and the West in, in Confucian and Christian thought, for example, in South Asia, too, can, um, can be expressed in commercial versions, so to speak. And then in 2010, I wrote a book called Bourgeois Dignity, why economics can't explain the modern world, which was a systematic, um, I I don't want to exaggerate, but a systematic, serious criticism of materialist explanations of how we became so rich. That is, arguments from foreign trade, Uh, from the right wing, arguments from exploitation from the left, arguments from accumulate, accumulate, this is Moses and the prophets, as Mark said, from from both sides, Um, arguing that these don't these haven't got the quantitative oomph it's although it it has there are very few numbers in the book um there aren't any there aren't any pictures either i'm sorry to say um it it makes the case that there had to be so to speak a spiritual rhetorical ethical conversational sociological change to explain such a gigantic explosion as what I'm now calling the great enrichment after 1800 in places like the United uh, um, States, but now spreading to China and India and soon the rest of the world. And then the third volume, which I'll mainly mention this afternoon, um, it is called The Treasured Bourgeoisie. There's a kind of joke in there. Isn't that nice? And my, my subtitles get longer with each book in the trilogy. Thank God I'm not going to six. I would have, you know, half a page of, of subtitle. And, and the subtitle is, is, is the t- title this afternoon, How... Well, now I've changed it a bit, but how innovations and markets became ethical 1600 to 1848 then suspect and the the the, the fact that the last two of the of, of the trilogy emphasize and that lies behind even the first. I was, I was lo- looking at a nice, uh, lying in bed after an exhausting flight from Europe um, y- yesterday, wa- watching a very nice um, uh, biography, <laughs> uh, a potted biography of John D. Uh, Rockefeller. And although John D. is famously, uh, the great robber baron, and just a terrible, terrible guy. I mean, gosh, he was awful. He brought down the price of k- k- kerosene um, down to a third of its price in 1918, 1870, a terrible thing to do. Um, it, it, in fact, made perfectly clear that he was an honest and upright person his whole life unusually so for his age, and that his, um, his business uh, practices, though uh, they would not receive the approval of the n- 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 New York Times editorial page these days, uh, were um, uh, above the standard of the, of the time. And he was one of the creators of the great enrichment. And there were thousands of them. These men and women innovating, entrepreneurs, and putting their money where their mouth was, and improving the lot, of the ancestors of, everyone, uh, the ancestors of everyone in this room. I, I lo- look around, I don't see any, it's a little hard to see with these lights, perhaps and I'm not perceiving you correctly, but I don't see any obvious descendants of the crowned heads of Europe or Asia or Africa. Are there any descendants of uh, African kings here or any, um, Uh, European royal families in the room. Most of us were $3 a day poor before 1800. $3 a day, we would be sleeping on the heating outlets in the parks here in Washington, $3 a day. That was what humans had Been accustomed to since, well, you can date it whenever you want, since the invention of full language about 100,000 years ago, or the agricultural revolution in nine different parts of the world 10,000 years ago, and all the way up to 1800. That was the average lot of human beings, and only a few priests and kings and occasional big time merchant would do any better than that. Even England and Holland, which by 1800 were the most rich parts of the world, had average incomes of something like $6 a day, as my Mother says $6 a day is no bag of bluebirds either. Now, I don't know why a bag of bluebirds is such a grand idea, but but you can kind of see the point. $6 a day is desperate poverty. And that was what this highly successful uh, uh, Britain or Holland in 1800. experienced now holland and england make conservatively measured over a hundred make and consume a hundred dollars a day in fact it's so conservatively measured that i'm very uneasy to use the numbers because even though it's a spectacular increase over three dollars a day a factor of 33 actually the factor of increase is much larger because the quality of most things has improved very few things have gotten worse, and a lot have gotten gotten much better. For example, economic knowledge has gotten a lot better since 1800. Not that it's applied very often, but there you are. Um, it, it 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 keeps we economists in business. Um, so. The question is, then, if it's not these material forces, not the usual things you've heard, even even the kind of spiritual material combination that uh, Max Weber in 1905 so, so brilliantly um, advocated, namely a psychological change, an internal change in uh, the spiritual life of Calvinists that drove them to what, according to Uncle Max, um, higher savings. Higher savings is not what made the modern world. We we in the United States think of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin. I have a friend who worked in real estate, and she said the key to Um, selling people second homes was the Benjamin Franklin close in her industry's formulation. Namely, towards the end of the sales pitch, you say, now look, having a second home is an investment, is a prudent saving-like piece of behavior. It's not an indulgence, it's a really good idea from the savings point of view. But that kind of cautious meaning of prudence, or the prudence is important, is not what made the modern world. What made the modern world is Benjamin Franklin type inventions, not just mechanical inventions. Did did you know that he he invented a water harmonica? I mean, this this is insane. Uh, um, This guy was, he, 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 he he kept crossing the Atlantic. His wife must have been long-suffering, but kept crossing the Atlantic because he didn't take her. Um, uh, and so he got curious about the Gulf Stream, so he measured the Gulf Stream. Uh, he he uh, you, You've heard of the Franklin stove and so on and so forth. But of course, he also made great institutional inventions. The University of Pennsylvania, for one thing, the american postal service well i wish she hadn't made it the us postal service i wish she had made it private but there you are and and it's that kind of here here's the phrase here here here's the here's the phrase i want you to use instead of capitalism although it's such a clumsy phrase that we're going to have to think of some alternative market tested innovation, and supply. Every word counts. If Benjamin Franklin's water harmonica didn't make it as the, in the marketplace, as I tell you, it didn't. Um, we don't have uh, bars with water harmonicas in them. Um, it, it doesn't survive and shouldn't survive, because the market is, is Again, it's stupid to, to tell an audience at Cato this, but the market is democratic. It's the elite judgments that are not democratic. It's the opinions of United States se, 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 uh, senators about where bridges should be located that are not de- democratic aren't about us, the general population. So if it's, not, if, it's, if it's not these material things, what is it? My claim is that it's liberty and dignity for ordinary people. Liberty and dignity for ordinary people. Liberty to have a go But you won't have a go unless you think you can go. (laughs) Unless the society around you admires people who venture, who invent, unless the society uh, encourages such people, encourage, fill with courage, they won't do it. And we, we have many, many, many examples of this. In fact, <laughs> I must say, although it's very nice to come to Cato and see the inspired young people, it depresses me profoundly every time I come to Washington. Because here are all these bright, young college graduates in their wonderful suits, rushing about, having lunch, and they're not devoted to innovation. They're devoted to stopping innovation for the most part. That's their whole purpose. I overheard a conversation at <laughs> breakfast. It was so revealing that I was embarrassed and had to move to another table um, about, uh, let's see, what was the, KK oh yeah, Th- these were the pharmacy people and the pharmacy lobbyists were meeting and talking about their, their, their problems, and the you know the pharmacy people want to preserve the monopoly of their industries. They want to preserve their, the, the, their copy their uh, patents, and and so a society. <laughs> imagine this. Now this is a horrible thought. Imagine the whole of the United States were like Washington, D.C. I mean right down to, to uh, uh, every town in the United States was filled with people trying to stop innovation, trying to regulate it, disdaining it, su- suspect of it, urging lawyers to attack it and so forth. So you need both. You need liberty, legal liberty, and you need sociological dignity. Now, the question that I answer in the third volume, besides emphasizing the size of the great um, enrichment, which is just astounding, Uh, it's out of human experience and, and will transform the world entirely. Um, uh, material and spiritually. I, 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 I argue about. I argue that the causes of this, this rhetorical change, this ethical change, were. Now this is an odd. Sounds very intellectually unsatisfactory way of putting it, but as a first approximation, it's not bad, were an accident of historical events in in the 16th and 17th and 18th century in Northwestern Europe. They weren't deep European superiority. I mean, anyone who still thinks that there's something special about Europeans uh, has not been paying attention because non-Europeans in shockingly large numbers are doing very well. Thank you very much. And bid fair to do even better. The accidents were things like, and here I'll I'll end, were things like the Protestant Reformation, not Max Weber's psychological effects of the uh, uh, the doctrine of salvation, but the as it were so- sociological effects on church governance. Now I'm an Anglican. I'm a, a progressive Episcopalian, um, and my church didn't do this my church was is and was a community-based church um, which I admire very much and uh, but but it it wasn't but it still had hierarchy it still had bishops still does um, and Lutheran's weren't were like um, uh, Anglicans in this connection. But the Scots and the Dutch, Swiss, some of the Swiss, some of the French though they were forced out, were Calvinists or still more radical Anabaptists or somewhat afterwards, English Quakers or Puritans as we call them in the United States, congregationalists who ch- whose congregation chose the minister. Uh, in the Quaker case, they went so far as, or, or uh, in the Amish case, um, they, they went so far as to not have any, any minister. The priesthood of, of all believers carried to its logical extreme Women could preach in a Quaker meeting, still can. Revolts, so Reformation, revolts. All the regimes of the northern hemisphere were challenged in the 16th and 17th century by climatic change, not global warming, but global freezing. The Japanese, the Chinese, the Ottoman Empire, um, the Russians, uh, uh, and the Europeans were, 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 their regimes were shaken by bad harvests and cold. And how the regimes reacted across the Northern Hemisphere was crucial for their outcome, because all these regimes were capable of industrialization. China was. China had long been the most innovative economy on earth. Most of what we have by say 1500, by way of inventions, both institutional, such as their examination system for the bureaucracy, and they're 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 not having an aristocracy, and their uh, their invention of the blast furnace, um, uh, porcelain, blah blah blah, all came from China. Anyone who in 1492, <laughs> who knew there was somehow God had told them that that there was going to be an industrial revolution somewhere, would have been crazy to bet on these pathetic little countries around the North Sea who in fact pulled it off they would have all bet on China or if not China Japan which shortly after maybe around 1650 or so was a stable that is authoritarian um, unified market although constrained
2: regulated in various
1: surprising ways and an island like Britain it could have happened there the the ability to read for example which was very high in places like um, uh, in Calvinist places and even in Lutheran um, and Anglican places by comparison with the south of Europe um, was as high in Japan as in England in the 18th century, percentage of people who could read the Ottoman Empire. Why not? Well, there were reasons why not. The way they reacted to the crisis of the 16th and 17th century, the way all these regimes reacted was to successfully suppress liberty and dignity for common people. One example, the printing press, supposedly invented in Germany in the the middle of the 16th century. Well, no, (laughs) it was invented in China. China was producing printed books on a scale that has left many, many copies from the year 1000. that we, we don't have in the, in the scrolls of the European Middle Ages. But it suppressed the, p- the dissemination of information that might disturb the regime. In the Ottoman Empire, in Salonika, which had a large Jewish population, the Ottomans allowed the Jews to produce books in Hebrew and in uh, um, in um, um, what's it called uh, anyway the the, the uh, uh, Spanish um, yes Ladino um, and and they were producing large numbers of books in printing presses by 1,500 but (laughs) the first books printed in Arabic script in Turkish didn't occur until the early 18th century and then only very small numbers of those. And the first books in the Ottoman Empire in Arabic script, printed in Arabic script, in Arabic, not until the early 18th century. So there was this grip that most governments had over liberty of the press. And I could extend it to other things. So why not in Europe? Well, the easy answer is European p- political fragmentation. It was the, the Venetians n- n- were Catholics, but not exactly enthusiasts for the pope, could, c- c- could publish, could one, be one of the great publishing centers of Europe in ways that really annoyed Rome. But the Venetians could say, too bad, um, how, many, how, many, how many divisions, how, how many um, uh, uh, navies does the pope have? So that's my story, that it was nothing special about Europe, nothing deep, you don't have to go back into history. Doug North's story <laughs> that it all had to do with institutions, um, I, I think is kind of silly, to tell you the truth. Um, of course, institutions matter. Capital accumulation matters for that matter. But what really matters is the is is liberty and dignity for you all for us for the folks because then you know it's like it's like the the, the obvious truth of uh, of uh, feminism if you suppress half the population you're not going to do as well if if half the population is not allowed to drive that's going to be a problem for the functioning of your of your society. So I in short, I have a ideological rhetorical ethical explanation of the modern world that it was the what was unique accidentally about northwestern Europe is that for the first time, large numbers of people, not just the free male adult citizens of Athens, glorious and illustrative of the point as their achievement in this tiny population is, when millions of such people, Dutch and Scottish, English and um, American are enabled, you get the modern world. You get the great enrichment. So, the current orthodoxy at the World Bank down the street is to, is neo institutionalism. You, you find an economy. And you pour good institutions into it. The World Bank is very fond of pouring things into countries. Um, pour dams. Let's put more dams in Ghana. That'll be good. And you get um, various dam born diseases and nothing else. And, you know, Im- Opposing British common law on uh, Paraguay is not going to do anything. It's the ethics, the respect with which we hold each other, the honor we give each other, my contrast in volume three is Shakespeare and Jane Austen, the honor we give other people, the the dignity, that's what matters. If you continue to have a society of hierarchy and sneering aristocrats and landowners, you don't get innovation. If it's not only the sneering aristocrats and landowners, the sneering bourgeoisie can do just as much damage as you can see in the many um K Street um operatives. I hope there aren't any in this room. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, that was, that was wonderful. Um I'm um, I'm I'm delighted that we have Donald Boudreau to, to, to offer a few comments on, 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 on the book and, and on Deirdre's talk. Um, again, Donald doesn't need an introduction, uh, but he is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He served as the chairman of the economics department there. Previously, he was the president of the Foundation um, for Economic Education, an associate professor of legal studies and economics at Clemson University and also a visiting fellow in law and economics uh, at Cornell. His PhD in economics is from Auburn, and his law degree is from University of Virginia. Um, He has lectured in the United States and overseas on, on a range of topics from antitrust to law and economics to international trade, and his writings have appeared not only in scholarly journals like the Southern Economic Journal or the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking, but also in popular outlets, including um Wall Street Journal and, 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 and others. Um, so we are very pleased to to have him at Cato again. I should say that he's a he's affiliated as a as a fellow with the, the Cato Institute in in, 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 in some way and, and, and it's always
3: great to see him here. Thanks. Thanks Dalvar you, you left out my most important uh, place of publication it's the Cato Journal. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm in there several times. I'm very, very proud of it. I uh, uh, was thinking as I was sitting in the green room just before coming here, I'm, I'm not sure if I should classify my, my, my luck, my placement at speaking as good fortune or, or, or misfortune. Uh, yesterday, I spoke at uh, an event in northern New Hampshire called uh, the Porcupine Fest. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunately shortened to pork fest that's not a really good name for the true pork fest we take place just steps from here in K Street with free goo- gucci loafers for everyone um, and and in my talk yesterday I was uh, the 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 session before me featured homebrewed beer the session after me featured David Friedman and I was so sandwiched in between now'm I'm, I'm, I'm paired with uh, Deirdre McCloskey uh, in, in, in all cases, uh, these are uh, things, people uh, who are enormously influential, both on me and on on others. And I I was sandwiched in or, or paired with uh, uh, events far more important than me. But here I am. Um, I had, and I, I hope you appreciate the allusion, I think Deirdre will, I, I actually had, before I left to go to New Hampshire, I had a uh, typed up my remarks for this I put it in material form, and then on the f- uh, uh, flight back this morning from from Burlington, Vermont, uh, I had an idea uh, and, and my my idea was rather different from my remarks, so I ditched the material <laughs> and i'm I'm going with with my idea so I scribbled down it's, I, I could have put it in material form somewhat I scribbled down uh, uh, my idea. About Deirdre's work, because I think it's I, I know it's it's vitally important. Most of us mortals when we start our intellectual lives, so most of us it's 18 or, or 19, some some immortals among us, probably Deirdre, my colleague Tyler Cowan, they started at they started at, uh, uh, you know two years old or something. <laughs> uh, I, when I was 18 and started reading seriously, you 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 and others, I'm sure, you read things that Permanently change your intellectual DNA, and you go through the rest of your life uh, seeing the world with this DNA. And and for me, it was Hayek, Jim Buchanan, Joseph Schumpeter, Friedrich Bastiat. And since that time, so you know, since over the past 30 odd years, I've only read three books that I think have altered my intellectual. DNA. I've read a lot of great books. I've read a lot of bad books. I've only read three that altered in a significant way my intellectual DNA. And the thing that each of these books has in common is their emphasis, central emphasis on the importance of ideas, immaterial, unmeasurable ideas. And these three books, I give them to you in chronological order, uh, were Julian Simon's ultimate resource. Uh, the second is the 1993 book by uh, Jeff Brennan and Lauren Lemasky, entitled Democracy and Decision. And the third book is Deirdre's 2010 Bourgeois Dignity. Each of these three books fundamentally changed, uh, in a good way, I think, the way I see the world. In the case of Simon, in, as Deirdre said, and for a Cato audience, he doesn't need much of an introduction. But the ultimate resource for Julian Simon is the human mind. It, it is what cre- creates all the resources that we, that we mistakenly call natural. I'll get back to that thought in just a moment. But it's ideas that matter. It's not what's in the ground. That's not where things start. It's not what's in the machines. That's not where things start. It's what's in the mind that is at, at root the important creative force leading to human prosperity. For Brennan and Lemasky, they, they provided uh, the, uh, the missing link for public choice. Interesting thing about all these three books, at least for me, uh, I, I, each of them provided something of a, a missing link. But before I read them, I didn't realize there was a link missing. <laughs> but you read the book, oh, yeah, I, I, there was a missing link, and this is it. Um, the, the thesis of the Brennan Lemasky book is that contrary to naive public choice, ideas, in fact, do matter. Mm-hmm. Ideology does matter. It affects public policy. Yes, special interest group of, the special interest group effect is real. Special interest groups have disproportionate effect on political outcomes. Rent-seeking is real. Rational ignorance is real. You can go down the list of the public choice greatest hits. All that stuff is real and important, and it should be taken into more account – by intellectuals and pundits, particularly those at the New York Times. Uh, But the naive public choice story is just that. It's naive. The Brennan Lemasky thesis says, essentially, look, if you lower the cost, if you make it really inexpensive for people to express their ideas about how society should be organized or run through politics, then you'll get a lot of expression of ideas, and if and if there's no feedback, direct feedback, personal feedback to people expressing those ideas, typically in a voting booth, then you can expect that those ideas will be expressed carelessly and thoughtlessly. Uh, the, the upside of that is we need not despair, we, which is what a lot of naive public choice scholars do. They despair. They think, well, you know, special interest groups will always be more organized than than than, than dispersed. Consumer groups, so there's nothing we should just throw up our hands. This is, this is George Stigler's uh, uh, advice throw up our hands and just accept the world as it is. It can't be changed. Brennan and Lamaski give good reason for saying that, for, for believing that that is mistaken. Ideas are central to their book, I should say, uh, uh, professionally. Uh, that it's it's, it's obligatory, but I want to say it also. My colleague Brian Kaplan has done enormously good work in extending the Brennan Lemasky idea in in further directions. And then Deirdre's book, the idea that ideas about the bourgeois virtues matter, the idea that people uh, respond to how they are regarded by their fellows, how they are spoken about, by their fellows. Those things are vitally important. They they can't be measured. I'm not going to mention any names, but but two stories about how difficult the challenges that Deirdre faces with pressing the the role of ideas. Uh, One occurred at a Liberty Fund conference in 1985 on the Brennan and Lomasky book. And uh, Jim Buchanan was there. He was was not among the people that I'm going to criticize, not by name. But there were a lot of. Very well-known, very accomplished public choice scholars there. And they hated the book. <laughs> they hated the book. Because it, how, how do you measure ideology? If you can't measure ideology, it's not worthwhile. Come up with some plan to measure ideology, and we'll talk. But until you do that, we're not going to talk about the ideas. They're just too immaterial. They're just too amorphous. They're just too uh, kind of girly. They're not, they're, they're, they're not, they're not manly. And, and science is a manly occupation.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, it, was, it was rather shocking to me that, that despite the fact that the Brennan Lemasky thesis is built on pretty solid microeconomic foundations, I would say manly microeconomic foundations, these people rejected the idea just because it didn't fit with their understanding of what science was. And when Deirdre's book, the 2010 book, came out, um, I was speaking to a very dear friend, very accomplished Economist, not an economic historian, but a very accomplished economist who loves Deirdre's work was praising Deirdre's work. I was talking to, to this to, to my friend on the phone, uh, and and then he, he threw in at the end. He said, "Of course, <laughs> you know that's a silly explanation of the Industrial Revolution. Ideas can't explain that." And, I, and, I, and, I, and I, the thing that occurs: Where'd you get that idea? I mean, <laughs> t- it's it's a, it's a strange idea to have, but for this person, for this scholar. Uh, it, 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 he just took it for granted that it's got to be ma- it's got to be material. The material can only the material world can only be explained by material factors. And if you get behind the material factors, you're doing you're not doing economics. You're doing something that uh, it, it may or may not have worth in its own right. But it's not real economics. It's not real science. Um, when you or when when I, having now read Deirdre's book twice um, and the the new book, the transcript of which I've read recently, you just see the world differently, as I said, and words seem to have so much more oomph and impact. They're not innocent in a way that they were before. You know, Hayek wrote The Confusion of Language in in Political Thought, and and maybe that was sort of a predecessor to my thinking about this. But let me just give you a list of some terms that affect the way we look at the world, affect it unthinkingly or without our realizing it. Uh, And this is rhetoric that is out there. It's having an effect. And I don't care if it can be measured or not. I'm confident it's having an effect. It's a very unscientific statement, so I hope this is not being recorded. I'm confident of it. So here's a term. This gets back to Julian Simon's point. Natural resources. We talk about natural resources. There are no natural resources. Nothing's natural. Nothing is made into a resource unless a human makes it into a resource. And that means a human mind. That means a human idea at some point. Some creative spark that says, oh, I can take... John D. Rockefeller didn't didn't discover that oil could be used, of course, but I can take this stuff and I can... Do this to it, do that to it, and I can make it a more valuable commodity. I can turn it into a resource. I can give it a resourcefulness that it never had before. There are no natural resources. The fact that we talk about natural resources biases the discussion. We think that somehow some nations are naturally richer than others because of what's in the ground, and that's just just false. Uh, One of my favorites is the causes of poverty. Uh, I, I have at least one former student in the audience here and, and and I say at the beginning of all my principles of economics classes a, 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 a something made a big impact on me as a very young man as I saw Peter Bauer uh, on TV, the late Peter Bauer um, I think he was responding to John Kenneth Galbraith and and he said uh, uh, you know he says professor Galbraith again I think it was Galbraith he says, he goes on and on about the causes of poverty. That's how we talk today, the causes of poverty. What causes poverty? What causes poverty? That causes poverty. Causes poverty? Right. He says, poverty has no causes. Wealth has causes. <laughs> that was a, it had a huge impact on me. Just the, the change of words makes you see the world differently. Rhetoric is important. Uh, an, another of my favorites, this is a pet peeve of mine, uh, is to mistake or to use the term legislation as synonymous with law. It gives legislation a kind of, of of grandeur that it doesn't deserve. Uh, We talk about public goods. We talk about members of Congress, of Parliament, as lawmakers. I don't mind legislators, not lawmakers. We call them public servants. And we give them the prefix honorable. Why would you you not trust this honorable public servant, who is (laughs) a lawmaker, after all? Elected by the will of the people is another term. I mean, you really come across as antisocial if you object to what these people do. We have consumer advocates. We have labor policy. We have national defense. You're opposed to defending the nation. Uh, These terms are just some I just scribbled down in the past few hours. Deirdre's deeper lesson is the importance of rhetoric. Rhetoric carries ideas. The ideas that it carries get into our minds, our intellects, our, in some cases, our DNA, and they affect what we do in the world. They affect how we interpret reality. They. In fact, they, 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 they determine uh, uh, how we react to reality, both in private and in public, in the voting booth or when speaking When speaking publicly, the hardest task that Deirdre faces, I think, is not to tell a compelling story of the origins of the Industrial Revolution, the great fact, which is a great fact indeed. I think she's pretty much done that. Uh, the, The bigger task is one that she's been involved in for even longer, and it continues. This is an example, and that is persuading our fellow economists of the importance of this aspect of social reality. We are, we humans are, speaking, idea-carrying creatures. I mean, my gosh, what are we if we're not that? (laughs) We're not robots, we we have ideas. Culture matters, ideas matter, the way we talk matters. But outside of some people in this room, and maybe if you took all, I'm guessing, maybe I'm being overly pessimistic, I think if you took all the economists in the world and you brought them into this room, excuse me, you took all the economists in the world who were sympathetic to the idea that ideas really matter, Uh, you could pack them into the Hayek Auditorium and have some room to spare in the back. And that is unfortunate. But the proof is in the pudding. And if people would open their eyes, I think if economists would open their eyes and and have an open mind about interpreting uh, reality uh, with a with a more open mind, and they would see that Deirdre's really on to something with her thesis of bourgeois dignity. Thanks
0: thank you that was it was quite splendid if I may say and and I I'm, you I'm, may I, say I, I'm, 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 I'm glad the name of Julian Simon was mentioned because um, as some of you might know. Dura Mikroski will be getting the Julian Simon Award tonight from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. I think it's time to open it up for questions. Uh, Could I ask you to raise your hand and wait for the microphone? And then when you receive the microphone, introduce yourself first. So we'll start over there with the gentleman.
2: Hi, Clint Townsend with Students for Liberty. Um, I really appreciate your talk. And I think this gives us an opportunity to reflect on libertarian strategy. Um, if it's true that ideas matter and that the bourgeois values created the modern world, does that mean that we as libertarians now should start to push certain values, not through government, of course, through voluntary mechanisms, in order to create a more substantive civil society? And I guess the examples I might have are targeted boycotts, social sanctions, um, I guess to give rise to a a more substantive civil society. Um, This is sort of what the the strategy i guess is of this a second wave of libertarianism that's been talked about more and more recently
1: well we we of we of course must refrain from using the government <laughs> um I'm always amused by my 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 very many um, l- um left wing friends are always saying we should use the government to improve our lives which have been ruined by the government Um, yeah I I, I think we should preach I think an organization like uh, Cato which is not all that old of course has had a tremendous influence Um, the uh, Reason Foundation and Reason Magazine and the Liberty Ink tanks all over the world um, can have a considerable influence. Um, so, talk it up. You know, I, I'm I'm very pleased <laughs> to have discovered what I think I've discovered. Now that should make you and me suspicious, because when you discover what you want to discover, you gotta kind of slap your hand and say, "No, no, dear." Are you quite sure <laughs> that you got the evidence for it? But it it is true that what changed to make the modern world is what changed in some countries to make the horror of the 20th century nationalism, socialism. If you don't like that, try national socialism. Um, so. As Don said, ideas matter, but but you can't do propaganda. You now uh, b- b- boycotts, sure. I don't mind. That's a individual, voluntary act of protest. Let's see. Let's start making a list. Don, oh,
0: would you like to add something or
3: Oh, no, I, I, I agree with you, Um
0: Gentleman in white shirt in the second row, please.
2: Nice seeing you again. Um, Luca, Tony Celli, The American Spectator. This is kind of a softball question. Um, and I'm not trying to be funny here, I promise. That just happens by accident. <laughs> So you guys are saying, and you, Dr. Pedro are saying that the number of economists who believe that ideas are the fundamental element of how institutions work and how everything works would fit in this room. Yeah. Which is kind of insane because, you know, a rock is just a rock until we turn it into a tool. Absolutely. So how is that, I mean, how's that possible? How is it possible that they just think, oh, resources and institutions? Well, you know, it it would make a very interesting book
1: to explore the history of that. Because I would argue that from around 1890 to around 1980, nice sort of symmetry there, most intellectuals in the West, and by infection, a lot of intellectuals in the East and South were Marxists in their heart of hearts. They were materialists. They were behaviorists, above all. They, they believed, I, I think the key to all this is that they believe that meaning doesn't matter, that human speech is for communicating phone numbers, um, and not for creating meaning. Making that rock into an Auschalian hand axe, which for a million and a half years was the main tool of humans. So I, I, I'd have to write the book to even begin to understand stand to understand why it happened, but it did And everyone's instinctively behaviorist, materialist, at heart Marxist.
3: It would be, a, it would be a, real quick, it would be a series of books, and I think the first book in that series has, has been written. It was Hayek's 1952, um, um, Counter-Revolution of Science, uh, where he analyzed the, the this attitude and criticized so the social sciences, particularly economists, ec- economics, for trying to mimic uh, the methods of uh, unthinkingly mimic the methods of the natural science as, uh, sciences, and I think that plays some role in this unfortunate state of affairs that still aff- afflict us.
0: Gentleman um, in the second row in the in the pattern shirt. Sure.
4: The... Yes. Um, I want to address my question to to Ms. McCloskey. Um, You use the word dignity, and uh, to me this is a a fairly abstract concept. I'd like you to define it more uh, precisely. I I take it to mean individualism as opposed to communitarianism. Would that be fair? No. No, I I do not mean individualism.
1: I don't think the Uh, Renaissance, for example, was a great contributor to the making of the modern world. I know that's a kind of surprising thought, but I've concluded that it was not. It's not individualism that's the key. It's my respect for you as an equal human being. So another way of saying it, and this will appeal to my friends on the left, is equality, not equality of outcome, but equality of respect. And I really somewhat disagree with with Don's emphasis on the immeasurability of ideas, because all over the language, there's a change in what counts as honored. The very word honesty, which you will find if you look in a dictionary of Shakespearean English, meant to Shakespeare honorable on the battlefield or in the court. That's all it meant. It, it, it had started to come to mean by analogy the honesty of a merchant, but that wasn't a prominent idea. Honest, honest Iago is a is a little joke. Um, by the late 18th century, in Dr. Johnson and Austin and lots of other people, the word honest means what it means now: keeping your pr- promises. Be so the great honor word of an aristocratic society society of the great chain of being, where, where it's not the case that everyone has the same d- dignity, au, au contraire, au contraire. It, um, it, it, it becomes a society in which honesty is bourgeois. Honesty is honesty among we merchants
2: Uh, This may be something of a follow-up to the just previous question. Hold the microphone closer. If this notion of dignity is uh, Uh, expanding... Introduce yourself, please. Uh, Jason Kuznicki, Kato Institute. Uh, If if this notion of dignity is expanding and expanding to encompass more and more people or concepts or activities, uh, might it eventually uh, be headed toward uh, obsolescence as a concept? Uh, Something like uh, the notion of honor that would lead to uh, dueling or to blood feuds. Uh, These are things that we have no use for anymore in the modern world really uh, what about dignity uh, just fading away is something that we stop thinking about because uh, well, it, it certainly seems it certainly seems that if everyone is special no one is special right
1: well but but that's true and it should be um, no no one should be I mean I' I'm, I'm a Democrat small D understand uh, I, I, I believe in the spiritual, political equality of everyone and I hope everyone here does I hope there aren't any um, uh, um, f- people who favor aristocracy here and but so it should fade out and has um, the, the the notion of equality has gotten terribly confused because it's it's gotten to mean, well, equality means that if you're, if your iQ is high, you ought to be taxed more so that everyone 's equal and this is insane but 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 this initial dignity, which you know was not true in seventeenth century Japan and was not true in sixteenth century England. it was stand aside knave. That was the common
3: attitude. Uh, that just reminds me of a great scene in the movie *Immortal Beloved*. If you've seen that movie, this is Beethoven is walking with Goethe. In uh, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's apocryphal or not, but in the movie, Beethoven, the young Beethoven is walking with Goethe in a park uh, somewhere in Germany, and uh, the these aristocrats are approaching them, and Goethe his instinct is to move aside to let the aristocrats pass and Beethoven pulls them and they stay, right in the middle of the path and they make the aristocrats go around them. And Beethoven says something, you know, something like, you know, I will never, you know, bow to them. It's, 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 it's something along those lines.
1: Goethe was a civil servant. This must be understood. He was a great poet. I, I, I know, but he was for his whole life, a, a, a servant of monarchs. Yes, please, the gentleman
4: in the back. Bob Shadler, American Foreign Policy Council. Thank you very much for your presentations. Um, I would just like to ask how what you've said applies to some fundamental ideas for Cato and I think for economics, such as property, scarcity, supply and demand, and how does, as an economist, do you find tools to incorporate ideas into things like scarcity? Now, to be sure, property, some ideas through the state have some copyright or patent possibilities. But fundamentally, ideas are very hard to pull into individual property circumstances And how do you apply supply and demand? I mean, okay, there's bad ideas may drive out good ideas, but (laughs) the the basic tools of standard economics seem very difficult to apply, if at all, to the importance of ideas, and I would maybe add to dignity. How how do you use... Aren't you leaving this, this... the discipline of economics, or are you? I guess is my question. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm not leaving the discipline. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm here, and I am queer, and I intend to stay here. Um, no, I, I, I have the greatest respect for, for, um, for price theory. I've written a, a text on it a long time ago, which. I'm intending to, to reissue and to write a kind of a coda to in which I answer the very questions that you're asking because as Don perceptively observed, I've been struggling for, I don't know, 40 years to birth, <laughs> I mean, it's like a long labor to birth a humanomics, an economics that's co- whose core is not just prudence only, not just this strange character Max U, as I call him, maximize utility subject to constraints. Now, let's take, I, I, can, I can go through your l- this very easily, but I don't want to go on and on. But let's just take one. Let's take scarcity. Now, scarcity is fundamental to economic uh, um, thinking. Opportunity cost is fundamental to economic thinking. But what is opportunity cost? It's an idea. This is the point of the properly named neoclassicals including Carl Menger of the of the 18th of the 1870s as i think don will agree that it's imagining the alternative that determines cost it's what you what you imagine you could have done and what you imagine you could have done depends, for example, on your conception of your own dignity. If you're a poor man in 1600 and you're imagining what your alternative occupations are, you're a firm laborer, well, your alternative occupation is to become a beggar because you can't imagine Starting a uh, shop or inventing, an, uh, uh, inventing a knitting machine. And when people's imagination changed, when their ideas changed, the economy changed. So, in the short run, Max you and Prudence only works fine because then you've got as Don says, the ill-named natural resources or the the more or less equally ill-named capital stock in place. There it is. Here's the building. But in the long run, what, and not so long, what Cato imagines itself to be is the economic force it has in the world.
0: I should add that this will be the final question because we're running out of time.
3: My name is Stephen Sure. You've used the word ideas very frequently. I do. And made a contrast between those allegedly good people who have ideas and the bad people who don't.
1: Well. But isn't
3: part of the human condition the formation of ideas? You've never used the word truth. So isn't it the quar- the, quest- the quarrel really between true ideas and false ideas with Rhetoric being available for advancement of both, and to lead the, to the triumph of good ideas, especially good economic ones, over worse economic ideas.
1: Well, sure. I mean, I I I I I would quarrel if I had time with the details of your formulation, but yeah, I, I agree that. Um, but but what I mean by ideas are. The idea of starting a shop on the corner, or the idea of um, modifying the institution of marriage, as I hope will continue to happen in the United States, um, the the idea of a new machine for making cloth, uh, so institutional and, and um, mechanical ideas now <laughs> behind that i'm claiming as the as the as the fuel is ideology and those ideas can be good or bad and as you say the se- we we must learn Rhetoric, because Satan has it too, right? Um, and it's 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 another good book, I think. Um, to ask why, I, I and I do it to some extent in volume three, which I hope you'll all rush down and order from the University of Chicago Press in advance, because it's going to sell out just like that when it comes out. Um, I argue that um, I I, I would argue that that there, there are at least four very nasty ideas that intellectuals, European intellectuals, in the 19th century had, and in the 19th century they did a little bit of damage, but not as much as they did in the 20th century. Those ideas were nationalism, more or less in chronological order: nationalism socialism, theorized imperialism, and theorized eugenics. And in the 1930s in Germany, the four of them merged. Um, So there's some really, really bad ideas. Supported by, in some cases, by splendid and persuasive rhetoric, especially if you didn't watch the rhetoric happening. If you if you thought, if you think that communication, just a matter of information transmittal, as again Don said, you're gonna miss it. You're gonna hear um, Hitler's speech, and if you're German-speaking, you're going to be overwhelmed by how persuasive it is, and then you're going to march off. So, um, yeah, we we need to fight against bad ideas. So, Obricad.
0: Splendid. We will. Um, Good. Thank you. Um, well, I'm afraid we have to draw this to a. Uh, close on this revolutionary note. So, so thank you all for attending. And many thanks to our featured speakers, David McCloskey and Donald Woodrow.